Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Paul Reeve to talk about the Council of 50 and the early Mormon struggle for religious liberty. Paul Reeve is a professor of history and the director of graduate studies in history at the University of Utah, where he teaches courses on Utah history, Mormon history, and the history of the U.S. West. He's an award-winning teacher and author of Religion of a Different Color, Race, and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, and other notable books. Paul contributed a chapter to the recently released anthology, The Council of Fifty, What the Records Reveal About Mormon History, which is a collection of scholarly reactions to the release of the records by the Joseph Smith Papers. So, Paul, tell us what the Council of Fifty is. The Council of Fifty is probably not well known amongst Latter-day Saints in the 21st century. It was a temporal organization founded by Joseph Smith in the 1840s in Nauvoo. So the temporal arm of the church to govern temporal affairs and political affairs and included the vast majority were Latter-day Saints, but included people of other faiths or of no faith. And Joseph Smith explicitly decides to include them to suggest that this kingdom that he envisions is for all people. It's an organization established in the 1840s to help the Latter-day Saints think through temporal aspects of building a kingdom. Why did Joseph Smith feel like he needed to form this organization? Well, the Latter-day Saints, by the time they're living in Nauvoo, have been driven out of Missouri under threat of an extermination order. Tensions are rising between Mormons and old settlers in Nauvoo. He is interested in establishing an organization that can think about potential new locations for Latter-day Saints to settle, already thinking about looking westward or thinking about Texas, Oregon, Upper California, also thinking about relationships with Native Americans. In a variety of ways, it's just seen as an organization where the saints can think through their relationship with the surrounding society not just people in Hancock County, but they're also thinking about their relationship with the federal government. One of the themes that emerges in the Council of 50 Minutes is just their dismay. They come to believe that the U.S. Constitution has failed them and has failed to protect minority rights. And so one of the things the council does is just think through its relationship with political organizations, even the U.S. government. The Council of Fifty was also referred to as the Kingdom of God, which initially confused me. It's a somewhat nebulous term that Ben Park pointed out in his essay was also hard for the participants to pin down. On April 18, 1844, Willard Richards asked whether there was a difference between the Kingdom of God and the Church of God. Can you tell us how the kingdom of God was theoretically supposed to function as a theocracy, but not rule in religious matters? (laughs) 
Yeah, well, that's um, that's a tough one, and I'm not sure they ever fully solved that. But I think the Council of Fifty felt like religion had a place in determining government affairs, temporal affairs. They didn't fear the mingling of church and state in their minds. But Joseph Smith is very broad in terms of his thinking about religion's role. And like I said, he includes people who aren't LDS in the Council of Fifty. He wants to be sure that this notion of a temporal kingdom, what I mean by that is it's sort of the physical kingdom. It's not something otherworldly. It's the actual dirt and buildings on the ground. How are we going to live until Jesus comes back and inherits what we prepare for him? It's their effort at establishing a godly society and religion in their mind should have a role in that, but it should be open to people of all faiths or people of no faith at all. Completely open in terms of their vision of inclusion in this godly kingdom that they are setting about to establish. To signal to the outside world that his rhetoric is backed up with actual practice, he's including three people who are willing to be a part of the Council of 50 who are not LDS. Why did the announcement of the release of the Council of 50 records set so many historians' hearts aflutter? Mostly because the Council of Fifty had been known to scholars, the minutes had been known to scholars for a long time, but they were closed to uh, access. And so scholars who might be doing research in the 1840s, the Nauvoo period, would ask for permission to look at the Council of Fifty minutes and were always denied. And so speculations ran wild. Just simply the fact that no one knew exactly what the minutes contained led to all kinds of anticipation. So when they were released, scholars were very excited to finally get access to these records that had been denied for so long. Even the basics, I know, were speculated upon. Both you and I were in the audience when they had a discussion during the Mormon History Association where we could have a Q&A with the Joseph Smith papers. And they were just basic questions like, were there any females involved with the Council of 50? That's right. Just the mystery of the Council of 50 Minutes, the fact that they were kept in a vault and not given access to led to all kinds of speculation. And people just didn't even know basic answers in terms of who was involved, what the nature of the discussions were held by this council. Would it add anything to our knowledge in terms of Mormon theology, in terms of thinking about race, in terms of thinking about polygamy? All of those were sort of open questions that until the Council of 50 records were released, scholars didn't have answers to. Yeah, and I think they even speculated that kind of weird, bizarre things went on as well. You wrote in the beginning of your chapter that Pioneer Day celebrants often conflate the activities of July 24th with the patriotism of the 4th of July. But when the pioneers entered the valley, they were feeling anything but warm and fuzzy thoughts for the United States. They were, in fact, fleeing to Mexico. You quote Hosea Stout's journal, I confess that I was glad to learn of war against the United States and was in hopes that it might never end until they were entirely destroyed, for they had driven us into the wilderness and was now laughing at us in our calamities, unquote. 
What led to such deep resentment against the United States government? Yeah, so it's really a compelling moment in in Mormon history and Latter-day Saints in the 21st century assume, especially Latter-day Saints in the United States, assume that because they are super patriotic, that their pioneer ancestors were also super patriotic. You have to remember that Latter-day Saints were driven from the state of Missouri under threat of an extermination order, a state-sanctioned extermination order. The Latter-day Saints attempted to receive redress. They appealed to the United States Congress. They appealed to the president of the United States. And they failed to receive any response other than those are states' rights issues. They are fleeing the United States. They feel like the U.S. Constitution has failed them. It has failed to protect minority rights. And anytime Mormons have lived amongst outsiders, they conclude it is proven to their disadvantage. They've been driven out and they are driven out yet again from Illinois. When they arrive in the Great Basin, they are deliberately arriving in northern Mexico. They are crossing an international border. The Council of 50 Minutes give us evidence that they are actually looking for a space outside the bounds of firm state control. So they are thinking about Texas, which at the time was an independent nation, the independent Republic of Texas. They're thinking about Oregon, which is jointly claimed by Britain and the United States. And then they're also thinking about Alta or Upper California, which was a broad geographic term that applied to this bigger region that included the Great Basin. Simply because uh, Rasta Snow tells us in the Council of 50 Minutes that Mexico doesn't have firm control of its northern frontier, that might be a good place for us to resettle. We have to recover the depth of anxiety and animosity that Latter-day Saints feel towards the United States to fully understand what is taking place. And that's why it is ironic for a historian like me who lives in Utah on July 24th to see American flags flying in celebration of the 24th of July when it's a holiday that actually celebrates the arrival of Mormons in northern Mexico on July 24th, nursing considerable animosity towards the United States. We talk about the deep resentment they had that built up after years and years. Of course, we have the extermination order, but even when they did have positive rulings, there was resentment to be found. For example, when Bishop Partridge was tarred and feathered, this story is shared in this anthology, he did get a positive ruling that the mob had been guilty, but the ruling in his favor was a penny and a peppercorn. So that was also a slap in the face. No, that's right. Even favorable rulings like that on issues of being tarred and feathered placed within the broader context of being driven from their homes, some of them being murdered. And you have to realize and remember that by the time they arrive in the Great Basin in July of 1847, some Mormons have either been driven from or walked away from two or three homes by this point. That's not an exaggeration. That is the reality for some of these Latter-day Saints. And imagine walking away from your home or being forcefully driven from it. 
and feeling like there is no protection, there is no recourse. They have appealed to the federal government and have been rejected time and again so that you can start to understand the depth of their despair. And I think the Council of 50 Minutes make that clear to me for the first time in a way that no academic history has to this point. It's really like having a front row seat for the unraveling of life in Nauvoo. And it was really compelling and riveting for me. You know, you might see this as dry administrative history. It's council minutes. Who wants to sort of read through minutes of men sitting around talking and making decisions? On the other hand, it really opens up for me in a way that I hadn't had before these crucial two years that incorporate Joseph Smith's murder and then the decisions about where the Latter-day Saints will move to next. In that way, the council minutes, I think, are really quite riveting. That unraveling scene taking place in Nauvoo from 44, 45, 46 into the Salt Lake Valley in 47. Let's talk about Hosea's resentment personally, because I think this is how we see some of the nuance that we get from the minutes that we didn't have before, where we see how he is personally bitter. He entered winter quarters with seven members of his family himself, three brides and three children. He left winter quarters with himself and a bride. The others had died. He left Nauvoo. And as he was leaving Nauvoo, he was crossing the Mississippi River and he saw a bridge collapse and everyone on the bridge fall into the icy water and perish. What a horrifying scene. We had always thought that they were forced to flee in February. But from the minutes, we learned that that was a plan, that they wanted to leave early to get a head start. And we learned that this is more complicated history, which is what we always learn from history as we get more records, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, historians have have long known about Mormon forethought about the West. And in terms of being amongst the most well-prepared on the Overland Trail in terms of what the West has to offer. So they're reading John C. Fremont's published journals. They're looking for a location to relocate 12,000 people. A lot of times the way that it gets popularized in collective Mormon culture is that Mormons are driven from Nauvoo. They wander aimlessly westward until July 24th. Brigham Young says this is the right place and then they know where they're going. The Council of 50 Minutes make it clear that they are being very methodical in thinking through possible places to relocate. And as early as September 1845... Think about that. September 1845, Brigham Young in the council minutes articulates the Salt Lake Valley as a potential site for relocation. He zeroed in on the Salt Lake Valley. And you have other uh, members who are talking about this region as a good location simply because Mexico doesn't have firm control of its northern frontier. Yeah, there's Definite forethought, definite planning. Um, The exodus from Nauvoo is well-planned. It's in February and they're trying to get an early start. Those who are driven from Nauvoo, that takes place in September. These are the poor saints who are left behind 
and unable to outfit themselves and the stragglers to the point that Hancock County residents are so upset that there are still Mormons by September of 1846 that they forcefully expel them from Nauvoo. But remember, the exodus begins in February, and it's well thought out, it's well planned, and they are leaving because they know the writing's on the wall. It's become clear to them, and they have thought through and planned out a new location. But to your point about Hosea Stout, I think it's really profound to think about that, right? So it becomes very personal because the loss of life. We think about people losing their lives in Missouri, but we a lot of times don't recognize the depth of despair and the disease and the sickness that animates winter quarters and the loss of life that takes place there. And for Latter-day Saints, even though outsiders aren't there murdering them directly, they still associate the fact that they are at winter quarters as an outcast people, as religious refugees, with the fact that they have not received redress or help from the federal government or sympathetic outsiders. Okay, let's step back to the spring of 1844. The Barmans had plenty of things to complain about, but what was the main goal or pie in the sky for the council when Joseph formed it? Yeah, so initially the minutes make evident that Joseph Smith is thinking about potentially other places for saints to settle, not to replace Nauvoo, but to supplement, right? So he's thinking about Texas. Uh, One option is we're going to send an emissary to meet with Sam Houston, who's a president of Texas. Will he allow Latter-day Saints to settle in his independent nation of Texas? The minutes make it clear that Joseph Smith is not thinking about abandoning Nauvoo, but as an additional location for Latter-day Saints to settle. And even thinking about, well, we have Latter-day Saints in the South who are slaveholders. So maybe a Mormon settlement in Texas will allow them to continue to hold their slaves. And we don't have to worry about them bringing them north and complicating racial relations as a result of Mormons bringing slaves into a northern free state. So those are all possibilities on the table as the minutes open and Smith is thinking about potential new locations to establish Mormon settlements. And then his writing for the presidency, Joseph Smith told them that it, the Council of 50, was designed to be got up for the safety and salvation of the saints by protecting them in their rights and worship. Religious persecution had followed him throughout his lifetime, and he wanted to extend religious liberty to all individuals. So how did that take in their deliberations? Yeah, you know, I I think that's one of the really compelling parts about the Council of 50 Minutes is Joseph Smith expressing his vision of religious liberty. And it's really an open vision. It's of a pluralistic religious society. And it reinforces what historians already knew about the way that Smith and city leaders established Nauvoo as an open city for people of all faiths. And they even include Muslims in their list of religious faiths that are welcome to worship in Nauvoo. And so the the council minutes Joseph Smith, his despair over the Constitution's failure to protect religious liberty seems to be at the forefront of his thinking. And he is simply saying, 
we're going to establish a kingdom where we set the rules, religious liberty will be foundational to any kind of society that we establish. He's saying that it's not enough to just tolerate religion, but you have to establish notions of religious freedom, free from bigotry. And this extends to people of all faiths. It's really quite compelling for the 1840s in America. And for me personally, I see it as really something that should uh, inform 21st century notions of religious liberty and religious freedom, especially in the United States as we're grappling with notions of Muslim travel bans and uh, anti-Muslim animosity, anti-Jewish animosity is rearing its ugly head in the United States. I think Joseph Smith is establishing really foundational principles of religious freedom and liberty as he expresses them in the Council of 50. And it comes out of not receiving religious freedom for himself and a desire then to use that to stand in a place of empathy for people of all faiths to ensure that all believers and people who are not of any faith are protected. Contributor Richard Bennett urges readers to remember that the council deliberated courses of action. It did not dictate them, and few binding resolutions were made, meaning they talked about stuff but didn't do much. Also, that the council was deliberative in nature. It primarily gave counsel and advice. It invited participation. People might flinch at some of the things people said, but like we said, there was a lot of resentment. These are men who are speaking emotionally in a safe space. In what ways do we see conflicted people in these minutes? Yeah, that's a great question. And that was one of the other compelling aspects of, of reading these minutes. So at the same time that Joseph Smith is actually appointing members of the Council of 50 to draft a new constitution, because he's become convinced that the U.S. Constitution has failed to protect minority rights, and in this case, a minority religion's rights. So he appoints members of the council to actually write a new constitution. They struggle and are never able to do so, which really highlights the difficulty of writing a constitution and especially writing a constitution that protects minority rights. You know, a problem throughout American history. We've seen it play out time and time again. Racial minority rights, religious minority rights, sexual minority rights. We see that playing out in the 21st century in the United States. That is a question that is animating Joseph Smith's mind. But the interesting thing then is the paradox. So at the same time that the council is struggling to write a new constitution, theoretically to replace the U.S. Constitution, Joseph Smith is campaigning for president of the United States, and council members are sent on political missions to promote his presidency. You have this dual impulse, right? This sense of separation, at the same time, this desire to belong, to fit into the United States, to be a part of the United States, and to fix what has failed in the United States, as well as this impulse, well, maybe we're going to be driven out again and we should just completely separate and set up our own theocratic kingdom. And that impulse doesn't leave even after Joseph Smith's death. So you have Brigham Young, who will talk about establishing an independent theocratic nation at the same time that the council under his leadership 
sends letters to every governor in the United States saying, hey, do you have space for a group of religious refugees to relocate in your state? And that impulse continues after they arrive in northern Mexico. And within seven months, they find themselves back in the bounds of the United States because the U.S. war with Mexico ends and the land that they live on is transferred from Mexican hands to U.S. hands. And they will apply seven times for statehood across the course of the 19th century at the same time that they continue to express resentment and animosity towards the United States. So that paradox is just really highlighted in the Council of 50 Minutes, a desire to separate, at the same time, a desire to belong. I saw this as well, these polarized positions. God created the Constitution as reflected in these revelations, but also we want to write a new Constitution because this one's broken. We want to belong to the United States, yet they had seditious suggestions. Let's join with the Native Americans and overthrow the United States. But some of these were just throwing out ideas, whatever we can do that will work, that will protect ourselves. No, I think that's right. I mean, you get a sense as a Council of 50 meets time and time again, sometimes it's throwing spaghetti on the wall and and just seeing what will stick. And, you know, Private minutes, never intended for a public view. And some people then are just expressing the depth of their animosity towards the United States. And and it's very real. You get a real sense of that because it has impacted them so personally. Brigham Young commented on April 18, 1844, that he would defy any man to draw the line between the spiritual and temporal affairs in the kingdom of God. I've been studying to prepare for next week's interview with Richard Turley about after the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And it Mm -hmm. seems like as he was forming this Utah Territory governorship, that his relationship between state and religion was not as separate as the U.S. government would have liked. That's absolutely correct. (laughs) Yeah. One of the other highlights of the Council of 50 Minutes is uh, helping historians to understand that the animosity between the Mormons who settle in the Great Basin and the federal government that ultimately will culminate in almost a military engagement in what we call the Utah War when President James Buchanan sends a 2,500-man army to Utah to suppress a reported Mormon rebellion. I think the Council of 50 Minutes actually give us a longer chronological context than historians have considered before in terms of where does Brigham Young's sentiment about theocracy, the mixture between church and state, and animosity towards the federal government really come from. And the Council of 50 Minutes give us an indication that it is crystallizing in the 1840s in the Nauvoo period as a result of the kind of tension and a failure to protect the lives of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. And Brigham Young doesn't forget that. His vision is that there is no distinction between the temporal and the spiritual. And he will say that to the Utah Territorial Legislature. He will repeat that. And when the federal government will suggest that you should separate your notions of religious leadership from your notions of temporal leadership, that the politics of Utah Territory should be separated from your role as prophet of the Latter-day Saint people, Brigham Young rejects 
any effort along those lines. And he will say to the territorial legislature, I will come here and I will dictate to you in spiritual matters and I will dictate to you in political matters. There is no separation in terms of the kind of religious kingdom that he is envisioning and establishing. And that leads to considerable animosity between Brigham Young and federal officials who are appointed to preside over Utah territory. You included two quotes in your chapter, one by French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville and another by Joseph Smith, both having to do with religious liberty and the Constitution and some kind of tension there. Do you want to share that? Sure. So Alexis de Tocqueville is a French aristocrat who visits the United States in the 1830s. He's here to study the American penal system. Prison reform was a topic, international concern at the time. and But he comes to the United States and becomes enamored with much more than just the American prison system. He returns back to France and writes Democracy in America, a really long book, but his ruminations about what is taking place in this newly formed American Republic. And one of the things that he zeroes in on is a potential weakness in American democracy. He calls it the tyranny of the majority. Some in Europe said, well, democracies are inherently weak. Um, They're used to a monarchy with firm control at the center of, of power. And if you dilute that, you're creating an inherently weak government. And Tocqueville says, well, actually, there's a part of democracy that has the potential to be oppressive. And he calls it the tyranny of the majority. And when I read the Council of 50 Minutes, it really seems to highlight to me the point that de Tocqueville was making. He makes the point that, well, if you're in the minority and your rights are being trampled on, who can you appeal to? You can appeal to the president of the United States, but the president is there because the majority elected him. You can appeal to the judiciary, but the judiciary is simply the majority that have been put onto a jury. You can appeal to the legislature, but the legislature has been elected by the majority. And he just simply walks his way through the ways in which all forms of government where you might appeal for redress are really there at the behest of the majority. One weakness he finds in democracy is what he calls this tyranny of the majority. And to me, reading the Council of 50 Minutes, you just see that highlighted. Joseph Smith and other Mormon leaders have gone to the president of the United States and he has said, well, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. And he refers back to states' rights issue in terms of Mormon experiences in Missouri. And they have appealed to the legislature. Uh, Joseph Smith asked Mormons uh, from Missouri who have been driven out to write redress petitions to Congress. And they get no real response. And they find that sometimes the judiciary might find in their favor, but uh, still they haven't received what they consider to be justice. And so in every sort of way, they feel like the American system has failed them and tyranny of the majority has come to dominate their search for religious freedom. Some would say that the United States still has a ways to go before protecting the rights of minority groups. Can you tell us a bit about the amicus brief you've been involved with? Yes. So there are a group of scholars who are scholars of Latter-day Saint history who were concerned when first candidate 
Donald Trump and then President Donald Trump in his candidacy, he called for an outright Muslim ban on immigration. Then when his administration attempted to put it in place, they knew that explicitly calling for a Muslim ban wouldn't fly. And so he initially even told them to to make it work, right? Figure out a legal way to ban Muslims. That was a real concern for uh, myself and a group of, of scholars of the Mormon past because there were efforts at trying to prevent Mormons from immigrating to the United States. U.S. State Department in 1879 explicitly attempted to prevent Mormons from immigrating. Mormons were deemed to be lawbreakers because of polygamy. They were also seen to be seditious in rebellion against the United States. And so in a variety of ways, the parallels just seemed quite remarkable. And we felt compelled to speak up and we felt like we should file friend of the court brief to inform those who are making a determination on the legality of the travel ban that the Trump administration has put into place, that there is historical precedent that violates religious liberty in the United States. And we don't want the United States to go down that same road with the Muslim ban. My own engagement with Mormon history, it felt like the right thing to do to speak up in defense of religious liberty. And Joseph Smith's defense of religious liberty in the Council of 50 Minutes are compelling and echo across time and space, I think, to inform my perspective of this amicus brief in the 21st century. Thank you. This is a great way to end. Come full circle about defending religious liberty. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.